Hello, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the University of West of England this evening on this cold, dark evening. Welcome to EP1. Um, my name is Professor Mark Griffiths, and I'm the Pro Vice-Chancellor and Executive Dean of the Faculty of Health and Applied Sciences here at the University of the West of England, Bristol. It's great to see familiar faces and also new faces uh, this evening. I'll be your chair this evening uh, for the lecture that we're about to receive from Professor Maggie Ray. Um, it's great to see colleagues here from uh, many subject areas, and I'm uh, really proud to say that we have a fantastic public health program here within the, the university and has been for over 20 years. Um, Natasha is going to do some introductions for Maggie in a short while, but, but, but Maggie is a, a graduate of ours, very proud to have Maggie as a, as a graduate of ours, and it's brilliant to see her here this evening giving this, uh, this, this lecture. Thank you for coming along. I know everyone's very, very busy with their, with their working day and so on and so forth, but it's brilliant to see people here this evening. The theme this evening, just in case you hadn't noticed, is the future of care, the impact of COVID-19 on future delivery of care. Um, this is a co-hosted event this evening with the West of England Academic Health Science Network and the University of the West of England, Bristol. Um, I'm delighted to also uh, this evening introduce um, Natasha Swinkun, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the West of England AHS HEN. I'm going to say that now on because I've said it once in full, okay? And also Professor Nigel Harris, who um, is Director of Innovation and Growth at West of England AHSN. So thank you this evening. And what was a conversation that happened a long time ago, it's great to see that come to fruition. And Maggie, we are really, really blessed this evening to have you here present uh, to us as well. Thank you. Maggie, I'm not going to introduce or do much of an introduction, but Professor Maggie Ray is the president of the Faculty of Public Health. And we're incredibly proud here at UE Bristol that Maggie is that president, so well done. Maggie is also um, uh, one of our graduates here from the, from the Masters in Public Health, and also is a visiting professor here at the University of the West of England as well, so strong connections throughout. Just some housekeeping for this evening. Um, there are no planned fire alarms, so if you hear one, it's for real. Um, and our events colleagues here will help usher people to the nearest exit, okay? So please do follow them. Um, the format of this evening will be, after Natasha has done her introduction of uh, Professor Maggie Ray, then Maggie will do her talk, and that'll last for about 45 minutes. There'll be a chance to then ask some questions from the audience, and this evening we're going to use uh, something called Mentimeter, there we go, as if by magic. Uh, there's a QR code there, or you can go to menti.com and put in the following code up on the screen. If you want to make a note of that, code 74336769 then you'll be able to ask your question and what will happen after Maggie has given her talk Maggie and myself will then take to the chairs I will read out the questions and you can even vote if you like the questions or not so there we go how interactive is that this evening yes brilliant okay just very quickly so I've only got one work in hand there that's okay um we are due to finish around about eight o'clock or just after. So after the questions, uh, Professor Steve West then, our chief executive, will basically then uh, do a vote of thanks and closure, and then we will move to drinks and canapes out in the main foyer. So I hope that's okay with everyone. Please, you know, make a note of your question or put your, put your question into Mentimeter, ready for 
Maggie at the end, and we'll try and get through as many as possible, but obviously do it faithfully and um, fairly as well. This evening's lecture will, pending any technical difficulties, be recorded and be available as a podcast um, afterwards, so you can play this back to your heart's content. All right. Um, we do have a hashtag. It's hashtag future of care, which is all one word. So use that and tweet to your heart's delight. So just a little bit on our relationship with the West of England Academic Health Science Network. Uh, the West of England Academic Health Science Network is a part of the National Institute for Health Research Accelerated Access Collaboration, uh, Collaborative, tasked with improving the pipeline of innovation into the NHS and improving the uptake and spread of proven innovation. It's something that we're really proud of here within this part of the Southwest. It's fantastic to have the AHSN and brilliant even more so to have them as a partner with the university. The West of England AHSN provides a gateway into the national network. There are 15 AHSNs uh, that were set up by NHS England in 2013 and they were relicensed from April 19 to operate as the innovation arm of NHS. The networks come together to connect and share innovation across the whole network. Four main functions include innovation exchange, innovator support and signposting, real-world validation, spread and adoption of innovations. West of England covers a large geographical area including Bristol, North Somerset, South Gloucestershire, Bath, North East, sorry, North East Somerset, Swindon, Wiltshire and Gloucestershire. So as you can see, it's a true cross-region organisation. In terms of our links here with the university, with the AHSN, they are strong and they are, a number of, of examples include the following. We have strong links through Professor Jane Powell, who's in the audience this evening. Professor Jane Powell is our Director of Public Health Research here with the university, but also has a, a link director role with AHSN, which is a very, very important role. UB consultancy work in terms of real-world evaluation, which, as we know, more and more funding bodies are looking to fund within the paradigms of modern-day research. Articulation of unmet needs and facilitating pathways to impact. Supporting exploitation and commercial development of research outputs. And finally, but by no means least, collaborating on the major initiatives such as the health tech hub, health innovation programs, so on and so forth. It's a really true living, breathing collaboration that we have and we're very proud of that collaboration. So, without further ado, I would like to invite Natasha up to the stage to give her introduction of tonight's speaker, Professor Maggie Ray. Thank you. Over to you, Natasha. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Good evening, everybody. It's absolutely lovely to be here. And it's um, even better to be here because I'm not wearing my slippers and I'm not looking at you through a screen. I'm actually seeing human beings. And this is the first, this is the first outing I've had for nearly two years into an event like this. And I'm just saying I'm actually really, in, really enjoying it. Um, thank you very much for your introduction there, Mark. It's, I'm going to employ you as somebody to come and sell the AHSN for me because I think you did an absolutely stonking job there. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, what I was, I'm just going to add a few extra comments around um, the um, innovation arm of the NHS, which is how AHSNs are being seen at the moment. And that's how we were mentioned by Simon Stevens in the long-term plan. Um, we are a membership organisation, as, as Mark outlined. Uh, we include all of our 
acute trust, community trust, mental health providers, the three universities in our patch, and um, all the commissioners soon to become ICSs. Um, and our aim, as Mark said, is to support uh, the innovation and the, sort of the adoption and uptake of innovation that will meet the needs of the local systems that we work with, so BNSSG, BSW and Gloucestershire. But we've got really deep local connections um, that help us understand the needs of those systems. And we share staff with some of the universities as well. We, have, we share staff here. Um, and they help us identify some promising innovations that we could be looking at for the future that we can then help our organisations and our systems adopt. We also employ innovation and business support specialists and they help innovators at the front line progress along the innovation pipeline as Mark outlined. And one of the things that we're really good at in the HSNs is spotting, some, spotting good practice, spotting innovations um, that cl clinical staff and um, clinicians are supporting that we can then pick up and adopt more widely. And as Mark said, we're one of 15 HSNs that cover the whole of England. This is ours. We cover this patch in the West, but there are 14 others. And one of the things that we do especially well is we share between the 15 of us what each of us is doing and look for opportunities to import things into our HSN patch that our systems need that somebody maybe has trialled up in North East North Coast or um, the North West or you know, in London. And similarly, we export a lot of good innovations from our patch because we've got a really good history in the West of England of really good innovative clinicians. So why are we here today? What is Future of Care all about? So when we conceived these um, series of lectures and these series of events um, a couple of years ago, it was so that we could offer the opportunity and to, ex to explore the frontiers of science and explore new innovations that were set to transform health and care in the future, but do it a couple of years, five, ten years hence, so that our organisations and our health and care systems had time to plan for it. And before COVID hit, we managed to put on two events. Some of you might have come and joined us at, at, um, at one of those. We had one that was investigating genomics and robotics, and another one that was yeah, robotics and autonomous systems. And we've got another one coming up in January. I'll just sort of do a little trailblaze for that for you now, which is going to be held at the University of Gloucester this time. And it's going to be looking at AI and um, augmented reality. So if you'd like to see more on um, either of those two events that we've already run, then um, you'll be able to, if you follow the link that's on the screen there, you'll be able to get to our webpage. Um, and what we aim to do at these events, and I hope that we'll be able to do today, either um, during the networking or if you uh, afterwards during a sort of cannabis and wine, is bring together the experts to discuss various different things that are happening and the implications for the NHS on our local health and care systems. But not all innovations start out in labs or in robotic studios. Many of them start with people like us, like people like you, responding to a challenge, responding to a circumstance, responding to a problem or a situation you see at the front line of health and care, and trying to find better ways of doing it. So, over the last couple of years, we know there's been a complete seismic shift in the adoption of innovation 
during the pandemic. We've had to. The digital age, though, has been with us for decades. And yet I'm, I'm sure that many of us who've worked in the NHS for many years know just how slow the NHS is at adopting new innovations. And we have really quite lagged behind other sectors and other um, systems, haven't we, in how we adopt innovation and how we adopt new things and how we do new things. But during the pandemic, we saw the immediate uptake of things like remote consultation and remote monitoring. It forced us to do that, and it forced us to work together as systems to adopt things very quickly and to put aside a lot of the sort of the decision-making trees and the governance that maybe had gotten in the middle and got in the way of us doing that quickly in the past. So I think there have been an awful lot of beneficial changes that we've adopted, and we've been supporting a lot of those through the HSN. We've also recognised that not all of them are beneficial and there might be a need to row back on some of them because what you do in the heat of the moment of a pandemic you may not want to do for long term and I think when we're talking with Maggie in a second about workforce and the impact on workforce of the pandemic we need to consider for the future how we've adopted those innovations and whether we've got the right workforce in the right places doing the right things. So, that's more, it's enough from me. So I would now love to um, introduce Maggie to you. So Maggie, as Mark said, is the president of the Faculty of Public Health and has had a long and distinguished career. And I've known Maggie for many years. Um, working in the public sector in a wide range of local, regional and national roles, from advising the Cabinet Office to spending time as a Director of Health. So it's brilliant, it's lovely to see you here today, Maggie, and a uh, real pleasure. So over to you. Thank you so much, I've got Good evening, everyone. What a wonderful privilege to be here this evening and what a lovely introduction from both of you. In fact, the whole welcome to you tonight has been outstanding, so thank you so much. And to the audience here, it's a cold, dark winter night, so I'm very grateful you've turned out and um, it's lovely to spend some time with you. And of course, um, I am a little bit scared, I have to say. Is it okay to admit that? And um, sometimes these talks are a bit more scary than facing the cabinet office, but um, it is a real privilege to be here. And I think it's good for people in, uh, you know, people might look at me as the UK president of the Faculty of Public Health and think, well, you know, she knows what, are do what I'm doing. Well, most of the time, I, I hope I do. But actually, I think it's okay to share your vulnerabilities. And it's also important to recognize <coughs> that I wouldn't even be standing here tonight if it wasn't for the fantastic educators I've experienced through my career and especially here at UWE for the amazing opportunities that were offered to me. So thank you, Steve. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Jane, and all the other people that have helped me on my way. Now, we've got quite an eclectic mix in the audience, so I've tried to muster up something for everyone. And we do say public health is everyone's business. So um, I hope you enjoy this presentation. 
So the main, the main theme of tonight's discussion is the impact of COVID on the future delivery of health and care. And I really do think it's important that it is a discussion and we're looking forward to questions later on tonight. So the things that I think are really important that I'm hoping to cover tonight is just the enormous workforce shortages. I think there was terror at the start, start of COVID-19 that everyone would be out of a job and we'd have all that terrible unemployment. And of course, there is some unemployment, but we've also got many jobs that we can't fill. And it's not just the lack of doctors. I mean, we are a medical profession with a multidisciplinary entrance route, and we're very proud of that. But it's nurses, care workers, allied health professionals, and all the other people that work together to make health and social care work. And when I was, a, the last time I was the Director of Public Health in Wiltshire, I always say I was Director of Public Health twice, I loved it so much. Um, I was asked, since I'd done the job before, my Chief Executive said, why don't you become a Director of Adult Social Care? So I'm very passionate about the care system in our country and social workers and everyone else that goes to make up the, the care in our, in, in our uh, country. So I'm going to, it was strange tonight if I didn't talk a little bit about COVID-19. And of course, at the heart of everything we do is health inequalities. And I still believe very firmly that education and training is a fantastic route out of poverty. And work is good for you. You know, getting a good, well-paid job. And if you like your job, and maybe even love it, then it doesn't even feel like work at all. The vaccination programme, and we've already referred to some of the amazing innovations that have happened in our country. And I thought you'd be interested in the public health future landscape. And very much at the heart of everything we do in UK public health, we are, I think, recognised as the best and most developed public health system in the world, because we have a fully funded training programme, education, training and standards. So looking at all those training opportunities, and of course, training opportunities aren't just in universities, they're in businesses. And we've got a fantastic array of businesses represented today. And I'm a great fan of learning on the job. And I can still remember before I first went off to university as a young, what would I be, 17, turning 18 at that time, um, I took a summer job in a psychiatric geriatric hospital. And that was really tough, but it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot of what drives me now. So businesses can make an enormous difference. And then as already been referred to, this is a boom time for scientific and digital innovations. And we don't want people to be left behind. That is fantastic if we take everyone with us on the journey, but we have a huge gap in health inequalities. And it's our duty to leave no one behind. And then just the last few words about investment in the future. So I hope that fits the bill for tonight. So the impact of COVID on health and care, that's impacted on all our lives, haven't it? hasn't it? And many of us, you know, this will be a big night out for us because we don't often get out. So, you know, it's a great that we get some normality coming forward. But as I said, the headlines are filled with a crisis in the health and social care system and any of you working in those domains will see it every single day. There's a huge variation in the numbers of people we think are waiting for treatment. 
is simply an unbelievable number. And of course, when you look at that list, as I do, because I'm a bit of a data freak, it's demand-led. It's not need-led, because we haven't even got around to the need. So you can multiply that probably at least 50 times. And of course, we've got reduced capacity and resilience because we're heading in to the end of a second year. I remember I was at a, um, a Cayley, actually. I was having a wonderful time. I, I, every year I used to run, and hopefully I'll be able to run it next year, a Cayley in Bath for charity. And um, I remember it's usually run in the, the first week of January when everyone's feeling a bit dumb and glum, good time to have a Cayley, I think. So um, I, I saw the news, and then we realised something really pretty big was going on in China. So we're heading in to two years, and it's bound to affect all of us, every single one of us. And the constant reorganisation and adaptation. Now, change, I think, is good. Innovation is good. But it does take its toll. And then community health services are facing an overwhelming demand. We simply cannot keep up with the demand. So this is the background. And I know everyone in this room probably knows that, but I think it's important to state it up front. But I did, as I say, want to focus a little bit on pandemics. And um, I mean, this is one of my favourite graphs. I hope you've got a good enough picture of it. Because we have a lot of pandemics. And we in public health never say if we have a pandemic. It's always when are we going to have a pandemic. And as it happens, this is my fourth one. This is my fourth pandemic that I've worked in in my working career. And pandemics are quite rare because we don't decide in the UK if we're having a pandemic. The World Health Organization decides when something is severe enough. So you can see on this list, there's quite a lot of things that I've been involved in. I've been involved in anthrax. That was particularly exciting. Um, I had a cow with anthrax when I worked in Wiltshire. Not a lot of fun. Um, but I also was involved in the post-government, I chaired the post-government response to September the 11th. And you might remember, for those of you that um, can remember that, that, that period, we were actually getting about 100 white powder events a day in London because there was a great fear of dirty bombs and a great fear of bioterrorism. And I think probably the, the biggest pandemic at the start of my career was probably HIV AIDS. And I think we can all be very proud in our country of the signs, medical achievements, and the way that we dealt with AIDS. Perhaps we weren't good at it at the beginning because I think there was a lot of bias to people that contracted HIV and AIDS. But nevertheless, I think we've got there now. And maybe we're seeing some of that same bias now in our country. And the most important thing for me is that we're better prepared. And you may not know what the two main lessons learned were from H1N1. You'll probably all remember H1N1, the spine flu that came from Mexico in the first instance. That's where the index case was. Well, the two lessons learned were we must never leave ourselves unprepared for a pandemic. I think it was Dame Deirdre Hind that did the report on that pandemic. And the two lessons learned were 
PPE and testing. So no surprises there, is there? Because that's exactly what the problems were in this pandemic. So moving on to health inequalities and pre-COVID, pre things were pretty bad. I mean, one of the things, uh, great privileges I had in my career was to lead for the department at the time, the Department of Health was really leading for the whole of the UK. We have a devolved, as you know, devolved governments for health in this country now. But we'd lost our way. There was no attention on health inequalities. And we had this amazing across-government strategy with the whole of the Cabinet Office and the Treasury saying we have to do better. So you'll notice in this graph that after we got started on that in the early 2000s, we actually managed to narrow the gap. Statistically significant, the wonderful Margaret Whitehead, who is an amazing public health researcher, did all the data on that. And that's something to be very proud of. But it also tells me, and a lot of my work at the moment, is actually giving people the belief that health inequalities isn't just something that we can't do anything about. You know, we wring our hands and go, oh, it's terrible, we've got health inequalities. We actually could make enormous progress, and not in 25 years. If we tackle it, we would see the changes in one or two or three years. So it's great for the Treasury, because they want to do it. And actually, the, the policy at the moment, whatever your politics, I'm, I'm apolitical, I don't have allegiance to any political party, that I think at the moment everyone wants to do it. And that's, that's to be commended. The ICSs, the NHS, social care, the governments, they want to do it. They want to make a difference. We just need to try and give people the headspace to figure out. I mean, they don't even need to figure out how to do it because there's 10 high-impact changes that we could just do and they'd make a huge difference. So the impacts of COVID on our, on our health, I mean, we've been very badly hit in the UK. When we had SARS, that was another pandemic I was involved in. It was really bad for cities like, you know, countries like Taiwan, Singapore, Canada. It nearly brought down the Canadian government because a couple of years before SARS, they got rid of all their public health people to make savings and cut everything to do with pandemic management. They were very badly hit. We got, we got let off much, much lightly. But in a way, that made us behind the drag curve when this came along. And I think the minute we heard it was a coronavirus, those of us in the know all groaned. Because um, if you're not aware, coronaviruses are very hard to deal with. A common cold is a coronavirus, and we've never found a cure to that. So they are really tricky. So I have to say, I never ever believed. It's a miracle, a scientific miracle, that we have a vaccine for COVID-19. But of course, um, Britain's very badly hit, number of theories, too slow, not prepared, not quick enough, always three weeks behind the drag curve. And the, the virus has just outrun us the whole way through. But also I think we're, there's another, other theories that will go alongside that. I don't think there's one theory. But we are simply a country with very poor health. And if you have very poor health, then you're going to be hit harder by this kind of virus. And then, of course, and I will say something later about the ethnic minority groups and the terrible impact the virus has had on them. And the mental health 
you know, anyone working in mental health, the most important thing is resilience in your mental health. And I do wish an awful lot more was taught that was talked about that in schools because it's probably my number one thing. I still run the public health training program in the Southwest and it's one of my number one things with my registrar group. Resilience, resilience, resilience. And certainly after two years, boy, do we all need it. I think the other big debates that we've had, and I've, I've sat with government, I don't spend all my time criticizing. I do genuinely, I probably go to at least two meetings a week that are Chatham House rules where I try to help and support, free of charge, of course, because I have no private practice. And um, I'm very happy to give advice. I just wish they'd take a little bit more of it. But the reality is that health and economy are inextricably linked. We found that out a long, long time ago in public health when we said unemployment was probably the worst thing for your health. So you can't do health without economy and you can't do economy without health. So just looking in a little bit more detail about COVID-19 and social deprivation. So as I explained to you, it's not impacted equally across the UK. In fact, probably every impact that comes our way from any disease does not impact equally in our country. And these inequalities have obviously been exacerbated by precarious employment, poor educational outcomes, mental health issues and other lasting impacts. And that's why I keep saying education is so important, so very important. I mean, I didn't do my master's till later on in life and boy, was it tough. But what a privilege to do that. But if we can get those opportunities to people, and I know many of, many of you in this room have worked very hard both in your professional lives and um, in your voluntary roles to try and help children who don't have access to equipment. And that's a wonderful thing to be doing. Because as I said earlier, we don't want the digital revolution to leave people behind. But if you look at this slide, the deaths are higher in England's poorest communities. And I meet with Chris Whitty, our CMO in England, once a week. We're a UK faculty, so I meet with the other three CMOs. I mustn't get too English-centric. I get into trouble for that, even with my Scottish accent. So I, um, I really believe that this community, the poor, the people with special, special protectionist characteristics, all of them have been very badly hit. And it's simply not fair. So we have to do better. And as Chris once remarked at one of our Academy of Royal Medical Colleges meetings, he said, well, Maggie could have told you that this would impact on all the poor areas because it was ever thus. These areas were poor in the 15th century and not much has changed. And bringing us back to the Southwest where we're, most of our attention is, isn't it? Um, certainly mine, most of my attention is in the Southwest. Uh, that's my day jobs are. And I really feel passionately, and I'm so pleased Chris picked up global, uh, sorry, coastal inequalities in his recent report, because that does mask the Southwest as a very hidden deprivation. And some of it's urban, some of it's rural, and some of it is simply the, the coastal towns. So we've got to get into that agenda and make sure that we're doing that. And I know many of you are. Here tonight. 
And as I say, just a few words about the minority ethnic groups. So the report from Public Health England obviously was a fantastic tool to demonstrate exactly where these inequalities are. And the, the COVID-19 um, COVID has been quite interesting. In the early waves, it was really impacting on the Afro-Caribbeans more than it was on other communities. And then in the future waves, we've seen the um, Asian and Indian populations be much, much worse hit. So it's taken us on all sorts of twists and turns. But simply the risk of death is somewhere between 10 and 50% higher amongst minority ethnic groups. That's a big risk factor on top of the risk factors you've already got. So I'm really pleased that that's come a little bit more centre stage. But we've all got more to do to help those people take up the offers of the vaccine and other things that are available to keep them safe. And this low rate of vaccine amongst these minority ethnic groups is just making the whole situation much worse. Because it's not just deaths, it's obviously all the other impacts from um, morbidity in relation to this, not just mortality. So would you say the COVID-19 vaccination in the UK has been a success? I certainly would. I think it's, a, as I said, I, I call it a scientific miracle since we never ever got a, a vaccine for SARS. So it is a miracle. But we need to make sure everyone gets the benefit of that scientific miracle. And as uh, president of the UK Faculty of Public Health, I have called for governments, not just our own government, in actual fact our own government's been quite generous with giving um, vaccine to COVAX and trying to get the system. And of course it's not just, if any of you, I don't know if any of you have um, worked in poor and middle income countries across the globe, but if you have, you'll know it's not just about depositing the vaccine. You actually need the infrastructure to make it work. And you've got to stop so that corruption doesn't mean the vaccines just get sold on to someone else and don't go to where they're needed. So it's a big ask. And of course, the early vaccines, the um, Pfizer, etc., were very unstable to be transporting, particularly in hot countries. But we need more because, as we keep saying, this is not over till it's over across the world. And it's my firm belief that all pandemics come to an end. That's the good news for tonight. All pandemics come to an end. I don't think anyone would exactly pre predict when the WHO declares this pandemic over, because they will not do that until it's got to a state across the world. But I think we can expect to see it as endemic treat it as an endemic disease rather than a pandemic, and that would be wonderful. I mean, that will happen in our lifetime of that, I'm sure, if we keep going the way we're going. And of course, we've got to do, deal with variants, or as we like to call them in public health, scariants. That's what we refer to them as, scariants, because of course there's millions of, of, of variants on this, and that was to be expected. And that's the tricky thing of trying to deal with the coronavirus, but everything we can do to promote the vaccine try and get people to do it. And we have to be respectful. There's lots of good reasons why people have views that they hold. And the golden rule of public health is you have to start with where people are. If you don't start with where they are, you, you'll find it really difficult to force them, even with le legislation. So there's a lot of that personal touch, local, very local place, not just big strategy from the centre, 
you have to get down to the nitty-gritty. So how do we tackle COVID and prepare for the next pandemic? Well, clearly, um, Dame Deirdre Hines' report was absolutely accurate, but didn't, didn't entirely help us. So hopefully, people will learn the lesson this time. And we need the worldwide strategy, as I said, on the pandemic, because we travel a lot. I mean, it's unbelievable how much. When we had H1N1 with um, Mexico, I was a GPH in Wiltshire, and within, I think it was just announced, the day after the announcement that we had H1N1 in, in uh, Mexico, we had a case in Wiltshire because a family went on holiday to Cancun, flew back before anyone even realised there was a problem. And then before you know it, everyone's got it. So things move very quickly in pandemics. So we need the whole world to be behind this. And I think if we can do more to focus on prevention, pre prevention, of course, we say prevention is better than cure. We all nod and agree with that, but we don't really embrace prevention and we need to get much more upstream. Otherwise, the mountain of that need we were talking about is just simply going to get worse till there's no one left to care for the elderly and no one left to do any of the jobs we want done. So we want to get that investment prevention. And then just at the bottom of this slide, I don't know if any of you recognise this little creature. Anyone recognise that? Pangolin. That's right, pangolin. So we're not doing very well in recognising what causes a lot of the problems we've got. Because in that slide I showed you with all the pandemics, major incidents and all the terrible things that are happening, it's extraordinary the number that are related to animals, isn't it? So we do, if we want to prevent and we want to look ahead and we want a better world, of course, climate change, I haven't got time to talk much about climate change tonight, but that does have to feature. But how we treat animals and what we do with animals. Now, this little pangolin, if you didn't know, is getting killed in the hundreds of thousands for its so-called health benefits and people ingesting its various bits and pieces. So I think looking to all of that science in the future is very, very vital to us. So moving on now to talk about the new public health system in England. Um, you, might, um, you might be aware that in the wisdom, in the middle of the pandemic, um, in uh, a year ago last August, the government decided that it would um, disestablish the National Public Health Agency, Public Health England. And of course, we in public health are probably the most, I think we're probably the most um, reorganized specialty of all the specialties. We're used to it, it's part of what you have to do. We say, we call it the anthropological journey of public health. What organisation are you going to be in next time around? So we're well used to it. And we see these changes as vehicles to move us forward. So it wasn't a decision that we had a choice about. We simply had to do it. So the UK Health Security Agency, Department of Health and Social Care, at the national level, those are the two agencies alongside the NHS, because we have obviously the national NHS and the centre, 
have got a lot of the public health people now. And then, of course, we've got our local public health teams at the local authorities. We have regional um, NHS teams and we have the Office of Health Improvement and Disparities. And that is the, um, the box at the bottom, OHIT. And there was a lot of controversy about the naming of that, because I think originally, um, when Matt Hancock was there, he was talking about having uh, an Office of Health Promotion. And actually, that's quite difficult, because it doesn't mention health inequalities. And what I'm trying to implore people is not to argue too much about the names. Might have been nicer if they called it health inequalities. I'd probably have been happier with that. But we have had variations in the health before from previous governments and policy. And I'm not for variation in health, because variation in health implies that that's okay to have variation. And actually what disparities, if you, if you do the definition of disparities, it means unwarranted variation. And that's really what we want to get into. So you'll see that I've put um, academic public health because academic public health is really, really important. And of course, so is public health nursing. So all the people that come together, you don't have to have public health in your title to be a public health person. I think everyone has to have public health at the core of what they do. And, you know, we can already see the, um, the, the academic and science networks in that space. And that's wonderful to see that. So the new arrangements, structural arrangements, of course, are one thing. And they do come and go. And that's why you have to keep your core policy at the heart of all this. So let that go through its course. And, of course, we heard uh, the announcements that Health Education England is going to come back. I say back, I think Steve, you'll remember those days well, back into the NHS. And so, of course, is NHS Digital and NHS X. But let's not be distracted by all of that. Let's concentrate on a population health needs approach, not demand. Let's tackle health inequalities. And let's focus on health outcomes. And there's lots we can learn from business. We've got really fantastic businesses here who are not just about inputs and outputs, they really do understand outcomes. And that's what we need to be focusing on. And we need to be dealing with healthcare, public health, healthcare, public health, I'm in healthcare, public health, we've moved back into the NHS. So hopefully we can make a big turnaround there. And simply, you know what, if we actually took seriously measuring everyone's blood pressure, and then treating them if they need it, that would save thousands and thousands of lives. And people, if they don't know what to do about health inequalities in the NHS, and they ask me, I say, it's very simple. If you, if you, you know, let, let's keep it simple. Let's say you do two things. Do smoking, get people to give up smoking, and get the blood pressure under control. And don't expect them to come to the hospital, go out to the, the football matches, the pubs, and everywhere else. That, and does it cost much? No, it doesn't. So behavioural change has to be at the heart of it. And if you look right across UAE, not just in the public health world, look how much behavioural change you're doing. As every single, there's other universities here tonight, there's businesses. Businesses put customers first because they want to do something with those customers, whatever it is. So actually the expertise is out there. Let's make use of it. And then, of course, where's the money? 
Because if you looked at the comprehensive spending review, there's huge amounts of money coming into the system, but let's try and get it to the right places. So I think one of the things you learn in public health is I'm not really fighting. It'd be nice to have more money for public health, but I'm more interested in influencing because everyone will always have bigger budgets than we have. And let's try and influence where the big spend is. And if we believe that health and economy are inextricably linked, the work that we could all do in really revolutionising, improving the economy right across the Southwest will make the biggest changes to public health. And as I said earlier, as a UK faculty, we are the standard setting body for the UK on public health. But I wanted to explain that we, we've created most of these standards. We've got a tiny little paid staff at the faculty. None of us are paid. All the officers of the faculty, including myself, do it free of charge. And I think that's right. That's how it should be. And we're voted in to our roles. And the functions and standards are very important. But what we do is we give them free to the world because many other countries don't have a proper public health system. And we're very proud of the fact that we make these available to other countries to try and improve the standards. But we also make them available to anyone else that wants to use them. Because we've spent a lot of our, our own time trying to develop these standards. We enjoy doing it. And I like to think we're reasonably good at it. So that's our gift that we want to give to everyone who's interested in public health. And quite recently, because of course there's massive change in all of the um, nursing and, and medical education and allied health professionals and everyone else involved in health and social care, including our social, social workers and care workers. And I was asked to write some, something for the curriculum of the Future Doctors Programme, the Future Practitioners Programme, because I've been a practitioner in the past that's where I came from. So we want to make sure that those are freely av available to people and we strive for high standards. <coughs> and just uh, now to say a little bit about the public health care, career pathway. Now, I think everyone is really a public health specialist or a public health practitioner. You all are. You probably maybe don't even realise you are, but I think you are because we do need all the efforts of society to deliver the public's health. And in this sort of structured career pathway, of course, we have, we're very proud of our public health nurses, health visitors and school nurses. But every nurse needs public health. Every doctor needs public health. And we need academics and scientists working alongside. The Office of Health Security is filled with people like that because we wouldn't simply be able to do the job without them. But I think what we have done over the years is to create a career structure where well, you can come in as a student or an apprentice, work your way through, that's what I did, and eventually become the president of the faculty or the CMO. I think that's absolutely fantastic. And when I've been doing my, my prison work and trying to get the prisoners to become health trainers, which was another programme that I developed when I was at the department, I used to say to them, you know, if you have a vision and you have a dream, I mean, that's how you do it. Because education and training and development, as I say, not just in the universities, should be there for all of us. And we should be able to take up that opportunity. So, of course, we do have a medical public health training programme. But that medical public health training programme 
many years ago, we made it open to people from other backgrounds apart from medicine. Because of course, if you're lucky enough to get into medical school at the age usually, for most people, it's um, you know, 18, 19, that's great. But of course, some of our best nurses and doctors and other professionals are late developers. And as I said, I myself didn't do my master's till later on in life. Those opportunities should still be there. And of course, I'd like to, I'm just now coming to the end of my slides, us public health people simply get everywhere. We are everywhere you can possibly think of. So we're in research, we're in voluntary work, we've got dental public health, we've got occupational health people that are public health people. Sometimes we work for the national agencies. I've, I've worked for NICE and the Department of Health, public health consultants and even chief medical officers. So in this simple slide, we have wonderful people, some of whom you'll recognise. I hope you recognise Bola Alawabi, who is now currently leading the NHS Health Inequalities Programme, and I'm right behind her 100%. And Martha Rao, a long-standing long fellow of the faculty, very eminent campaigner on... She, she got one of our amazing prizes this year because she's been long-standing, before it was even popular to be talking about ethnic minority issues, she was there. So we've got all sorts of people, and um, the chap with the glasses on the lower bottom, I don't know if you recognise him, he's, he's, um, he's actually the chair of NERVTAG. I think you've probably all heard of NERVTAG now that we've been through a pandemic, Peter Horby, and he also is very big in research, very humble and, and you know, not, not someone that's going around boasting about his achievements. And of course, last but not least, Steve. And we were hugely proud to give Steve honorary membership of the faculty for his fantastic achievements, particularly in what he's done in the area of mental health for, for students, not just in the Southwest, but much wider. So the future of health and care technologies, well, it's massive. And that's where the Treasury seems to have no problem investing and CSR committed 20 billion of public funds to R&D. And so that is just simply fantastic. And for every pound spent on research, I think 19 pounds is back in economic returns. And that's why I said, you know, this is really important if you want to improve the economy. And the paper, um, 2020's paper focuses on predictive and personalised prevention using technologies and big data. The public have been revolutionised. Have you all got the NHS app? Fantastic, isn't it? We just have to make sure that everyone has a device to be able to get the app. So saving lives and improving lives, the future of UK clinical research has to be at the heart of this and that vision for the future. So whatever we are in the system, there's great, great opportunities and well-resourced opportunities if you can find the money. So digital innovation and health, um, I've mentioned already the NHSX and NHS Digital are coming back into the NHS. I think that's a fantastic thing because we, we do a programme in public health called Health Checks. Have you heard of Health Checks? So around about 50 or, or younger, if you're in a prison or a deprived area, you'll get a health check free of charge in the UK, in, in England. And fantastic, isn't that wonderful? But of course, to get that data back from NHS X, we had to pay a million pounds to get our hands on what was our programme data. So 
transferring it back into the NHS. I'm front of the queue to say hip hip hooray for that. So obviously there's experts in the room tonight that could talk about this agenda, but I think it's very important, but it needs to be seen through a health and equalities lens and be fair to everyone. And just finishing off now, have you all heard of the gallery trial where we're trying to get a bit more upstream with cancer because the excess death rate from cancer is huge and the data from ONS is just about to come out again. I've seen it. It is shocking. Shocking for cancer, shocking for coronary heart disease. So we want to do something about that. And the bit I really wanted to show you was this data. So we're in on this. You wouldn't believe, as I said, where we get to. So I've talked to the people that are running the trial, and I said, you know, I love your trial, but are you just going to widen health inequalities like everything else? Because every single intervention that is not targeted, whether it's the vac flu vaccine or COVID vaccine, everything you can think of <coughs> widens health inequalities because simply the, the affluent people have more time to take it up. So this is, this is their early results. They've not been published yet, as far as I know. And if we take the most deprived to the least deprived, you don't need to worry too much about the figures. I like everything simple. You just see 13% uptake in the most deprived and 6% in the least deprived. So that means by targeting, we're doubling the number of people in the deprived areas that are coming forward. And if you believe what I said about need, isn't that just fantastic? So very, very proud of them and our influence over that. That's fantastic. So to finish now, public health is a booming business. Health and social care is a booming business. At the heart of that, I think, is very low-paid workers. In-work poverty is shocking, absolutely shocking. And um, my youngest daughter works in ICU in King's, and she would not be able to live in London, even on her salary, if I, my bank of mum and dad weren't able to help. Well, she'd be living somewhere that I wouldn't want her to live. And that's the reality. Our nurses are going to food banks and care for their children makes it impossible for them to work. And care workers, I've long fought for the care workers. So at the moment, a care worker or someone that used to be a care worker in Cornwall can get £20 an hour for cleaning caravans and holiday homes. And we don't even compete with that, not even nearly compete with that. So I personally am delighted that the salaries of the low paid who deserve it are going up. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Are we ready for that? No, we're not. We were nowhere ready to deal with that. So if we can get that fixed and we do are able to make these changes, and we probably have to treat some of, some of this as, you know, really a, a crisis because it is a crisis. And we're good at crises because COVID has proven. We're very good when we galvanise ourselves. And of course, the work that UE did with, you know, all the offers for setting up the Nightingale, etc. You know, we can do it when we put our mind to it. But this is the core for me. We need public health in every programme. We need access to public health for everyone. Everyone has to be a public health specialist. And whether it's health protection, health improvement, or those simple things like getting your blood pressure checked, all of it, with your help, can make a huge difference. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Maggie, for a truly inspirational talk there. Thank you. We will now take seats um, over here. And we've had some questions come through on Menti, which is brilliant. There's some water there for you as well. But seriously, thank you. That was a truly inspirational and very, very um, present and now conversation, I think, and presentation um, as well. So thank you so much for that as well. Thank you. Okay, I might need some help. The questions have just gone off the screen. Oh, we've got one here, though. Okay, I'll just read from... I don't know where it's gone, sorry. Okay, so first question here. Um, the vaccine has been a miracle, a scientific miracle, um, as you've referenced. Do you think COVID variants will emerge that are resistant? And if so, when might we see this? Yes, well, as you all know, the, well, the sort of most uh, biggest and most dangerous variant so far has been Delta. But there is another one that you may not have heard of that's already forming and storming. And the great thing about the, the way the vaccine's made, and um, I'm not a virologist, so I'm going to keep it simple. The way it's been made by the scientists was an area of research that nobody wanted to invest in because they just simply couldn't get research money. And of course, they had this idea when COVID came along because it's a coronavirus and it will mutate, will do different things. And so they have the power already, whatever variant we get, it's unlikely a variant will ever come that they can't, um, in their words, tweak the virus, keep the, tweak the vaccine to absolutely slaughter any variant we might get. And that's why I think this is revolutionary, this science, because it could actually be used for things other than coronaviruses and other infectious diseases. I think we haven't only begun to see the very start of this. And for anyone that's met the vaccine team, I'm talking now about the vaccine team in Oxford, of course the other companies have got their, their own teams, but our, our home team are very, very generous of spirit and very humble about what they've achieved, but it is revolutionary. So I feel very confident. The biggest problem is trying to get people to get the vaccine because people simply won't. And if we don't get it, what's, what's herd immunity? I mean, herd immunity for the vaccine would be 90, probably 99% for this vaccine because it's so tricky. We're not at 99%. In some areas of London, there's only 50%. Some areas of the Southwest, it's 60%. So we just need to work harder on that. Thank you, Maggie. Next question from the audience. Um, you, have very, you have very clearly highlighted the importance of social deprivation as a determinant of ill health. Are public health specialists really able to address this, or do we need a different approach? Well, I think we probably have to take the approach that everyone has to be a public health expert. If you're depending on a little tiny specialty of specialists, then it's not big enough, and that's why I'm really passionate about making sure everyone has the tools to do public health. There'll always be specialists. I mean, I have to go to specialists in public health because I'm a generalist. But actually, I think if we get the whole, the whole of society working on public health, but when you get to try and deliver on life expectancy and mortality, because sometimes people don't understand how we measure health inequalities. So the classic measurements across the world are life expectancy and infant mortality. And of course, it is lovely if everyone can live to 80 years of age. That's wonderful. But that's not really what we're interested in. We're interested in people not dying 
in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. That's where the big disaster happens, our babies dying before they're a year old. If we concentrate on that and we get everyone galvanised, then it's a mixture of what the NHS can do, the things I talked about, high impact changes, but it's also about housing. You know, if you're on the streets and you haven't got a house, you're not going to live very long. There isn't any old gypsy women, gypsy Roma women. You might think there is, but there isn't. They just look old. Uh, prisons are another source. So we've got these huge, huge areas. Give someone a good job and a reasonable roof over their head. We're not going to be in a world where everyone will own their own house because that's not going to be where we are. But a safe home seems... I think that seems reasonable for everyone, you know, and we did manage to get people off the streets during COVID, didn't we? Thank you, Maggie. The next question is on the screen behind me here. Um, there's a lot of concern about antimicrobial resistance. Is this likely to be the next pandemic? And if so, what should we be doing about it? it sounds a bit serious, that question. Yeah, well, yes, it is. And I think it's a serious subject because it's already here. And I think uh, Dame Sally, Dave, Dame Professor Sally Davis, the previous CMO, that was her big ticket item, antimicrobial resistance. But if we're not careful with antibiotics, they will become. And if you've ever met anyone in your travels who is resistant already, some people have got very vulnerabilities, uh, poor immune systems, are immunosuppressed, and they've had a lot of illness. And they are struggling now to find them a simple life-saving vaccine and I don't know if you have ever there's a wonderful wonderful play that went out on radio and I think I must have been when before Covid because I was probably driving somewhere all the time being in the southwest it's difficult to use public transport and there was this um, this wonderful um, radio um, radio sequence of a, a, a book which was about Hawaii and it was about a world where we had already reached the point where we had no antibiotics that worked and how a simple cut on a child's leg meant the leg came off to save their lives. So I think we, we have to, we don't want to scare the public. You know, I'm not, I didn't tell you about the swans that are sick with avian flu yet, did I? Um, I don't want to scare you, but we're always looking at these things. So yes, but it's real now. It's not, it's not really in the future. So everyone needs to know how to use antibiotics carefully. And I know we sometimes, I sometimes complain that I can't just go to the pharmacy and buy an antibiotic. You know, I might have a little infection I could fix myself with an antibiotic. Well, there's a reason for that, because then we've been like other countries where people take them for everything and you, you can't use them properly. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you. Okay, next question. Um, Challenges to workforce development in health and social care are vast. You alluded to that in your talk, uh, Maggie. Um, skilled workers, leadership, recruitment, technology adoption and perception. What do you feel is the biggest priority issue to tackle at the moment? And some of those bits are behind you there, if you want to check on them again. Yes. I mean, suppose I would go straight. You'll probably have your own ideas because you're all very experienced people in this audience. But... I would go straight. My priority at the moment, I think, would have to be keeping children in schools. I mean, I was very distressed <coughs> that we didn't. I know everyone's entire... I would never, ever, you know, force people to have vaccines that they don't want to have. But I was very distressed of the number of school days lost by children, particularly in deprived areas. And at one stage, we had half a million children 
in the UK, not at school, half a million. And of course, the impact to the most deprived is terrible. And if you, we all know, if, if you lose that education, how, how difficult it will be to get that back. So, of course, it's important to, I mean, everyone that's studying at the moment, that's vital. They haven't had a great experience, no matter how hard you try. But if we can't get the basics in, then we're going to, people, both people that can't even do apprenticeships, you know. So that's where my attention would go. Thank you very much. The screen's gone blank, so I don't know if that's the end of the question. <laughs> but I've probably had enough then. <laughs> We've probably got time for a couple more questions, if that's all right, Maggie. There we go. It's, oh, uh, a couple more questions, if that's okay, colleagues, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move to Steve then. So the next question, Maggie, up on the screen here is, shortage of personnel in the NHS seems a massive problem. Opening more student positions at, in universities would provide more staff in the future. Is there any way to support that? Well, you, you, you're, you're here tonight and sitting in universities. I'm sure people would have better answers than me. But since I'm sitting in the couch, my, my view would be we have to open things up. I mean, I look at medical education and I look at people that go into medicine. We don't have fallout in public health, I have to say. Quite often people come to public health later on when they've figured out who they are and what they want to do. But a lot of people end up going through education and then simply don't want to do the job. And, and it, sometimes it's as big as a 50% dropout. And that's a huge waste of their time, our time. And maybe that's just a natural process. But I think the more people that were, you had to go through, of course you'd have to, of course, then say we need more staff. But I think that would be a good thing because there's two things I think are driving this, not enough places. I mean, every talk I've ever given to six formers, of, oh, I would love to do medicine, oh, I'd love to be a midwife. I, and half the class aren't even getting the qualification to be eligible in the first place. But maybe they'd make the better midwives or nurses because I think sometimes it's, it's a variety of skills. That was certainly what I, I found when I came to UWE. It wasn't all about you had to be top of the class on your exams in academia. It was your other qualities that were encouraged, and I, I highly commend that. Because certainly to make a good nurse, a good doctor, a good care worker, you need to like people, I think, and want to work with people and listen to people and be good at dealing with people. Um, the human factors are very important. So yes, but I also think that we need to make it better paid at the end of it. Now, I can't complain about doctor salaries. I'm, I can't. I don't do private practice, but I think I'm getting by okay. But would you honestly work for a nurse or a care worker's salary? I know I, I couldn't do it. So why do we expect people to do it? Is there any wonder they're not doing it? And most of the people I meet who go into nursing love it. They absolutely love it. And then they find out, well, I can't really afford to do it because I'm, I'm having to do more bank shifts just to keep my head above water. And that's before you even think about having a family or childcare or anything else. So I think that's what's wrong with the system. Thank you, Maggie, thank you. The final question this evening. Um, it is really hard to persuade people to change their behaviours. Given the scale of the challenges we face, should we consider using financial incentives or penalties? Well, that's a what good a one, isn't it? That's, on. a, that's a nice one to end on. Um, I've got mixed feelings about this because um, 
I think incentives can be good, but they can also be very detrimental. And if you look at the, the obesity care pathway at the moment, because I think we'd say we probably should do something about obesity, shouldn't we, in our country? If you look at it, you have a group who are vastly overweight and get nothing. And then you have a group that are in the obese category, but they get nothing. And the care pathway says, until you're this weight, you can't even go on the waiting list for bariatric surgery, although bariatric surgery is a, it's a bit, bit of a you know, hammer. But, but some people need it, and it's a very cost-effective procedure. Of course, if we intervened early, and we said, right, we're not going to let, we're going to work, help parents, help children, so no child in England, in the UK, is going to be obese. Do you think that's doable? I personally think it's doable, because children are not born obese. You know, if children were born obese, it'd be hard to fix. It'd be impossible to fix, I think. But actually, it's what society and everything round about them does. And anyone that's seen a child, they always want to be active until they get so overweight they, they don't enjoy it. So actually, we could fix it. I think if you incentivise it, there's too much temptation to get into the group that's going to get whatever the prize is rather than intervene early. And I think you could take that for smoking, physical activity and everything else. I just think we have to make it an awful lot easier. But how many people in this room are working on an obesity agenda at the moment? I'm not putting my hand up because I'm honestly not, not apart from talking about it, I haven't got any public health practice that's doing it. I think I will have in the next three months but if we were doing something about it, it might get fixed, but we're not. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Maggie Ray, that's been a fantastic evening and a fantastic talk. Uh, thank you so much for your time this evening. Let's give a big round of applause thank to you so much. Maggie.